Jack pulled a newspaper from one of the bundles and glanced down at the headline. Johnson promises orderly transition, says work begun by JFK will go forward in coming year. The paper was the Rocky Mountain News, dated December 19, 1963. He dropped it back onto its pile. He supposed he was fascinated by the commonplace sense of history that anyone can feel glancing through the fresh news of 10 or 20 years ago. He found gaps in the piled newspapers and records, nothing from 1937 to 1945, from 1957 to 60, from 1962 to 63, periods when the hotel had been closed, he guessed, when it had been between suckers grabbing for the brass ring. Ullman's explanations of the Overlook's checkered career still didn't quite ring true to him. It seemed that the Overlook's spectacular location alone should have guaranteed its continuing success. There had always been an American jet set, even before jets were invented, and it seemed to Jack that the Overlook should have been one of the bases they touched in their migrations. It even sounded right. The Waldorf in May, the Bar Harbor House in June and July, the Overlook in August and early September, before moving on to Bermuda, Havana, Rio, wherever. He found an old pile of desk registers and they, and they bore him out. Nelson Rockefeller in 1950, Henry Ford and Pham in 1927, Gene Harlow in 1930, Clark Gable and Carol Lombard. In 1956, the whole top floor had been taken for a week by Daryl F. Zanuck and party. The money must have rolled down the corridors and into the cash registers like a 20th century Comstock load. The management must have been spectacularly bad. There was history here, all right, and not just in newspaper headlines. It was buried between the entries at the ledgers and account books and room service chits where you couldn't quite see it. In 1922, Warren G. Harding had ordered a whole salmon at 10 o'clock in the evening and a case of Coors beer. But whom had he been eating and drinking with? Had it been a poker game? A strategy session? What? Jack glanced at his watch and was surprised to see that 45 minutes had somehow slipped by since he had come down here. His hands and arms were grimy. He probably smelled bad. He decided he had to go up and take a shower before Wendy and Danny got back. He walked slowly between the mountains of paper, his mind alive and ticking over possibilities in a speedy way that was exhilarating. He hadn't felt this way in years. It suddenly seemed that the book he had been semi-jokingly promised himself might really happen. It might even be right here, buried in these untidy heaps of paper. It could be a work of fiction or history or both. A long book exploding out of this central place in a hundred directions. He stood beneath the cobwebby like, took the handkerchief from his back pocket without thinking and scrubbed at his lips with it. And that was when he saw the scrapbook. A pile of five boxes stood on his left like a tottering pizza. The one on top was stuffed with more invoices and ledgers. Balanced on top of those, keeping its angle of repose for who knows how many years, was a thick scrapbook with white leather covers, its pages bound with two hanks of gold string that had been tied along the binding in gaudy bows. Curious, he went over and took it down. The top cover was thick with dust. He held it on a plane at lip level, blew the dust off in a cloud, and opened it. As he did so, a card fluttered out, and he grabbed it in midair before it could fall to the stone floor. It was rich and creamy, dominated by a raised engraving of the overlook with every window alight. 
The lawn and playground were decorated with glowing Japanese lanterns. It looked almost as though you could step right into it. An overlook hotel that existed 30 years ago. Horace Emder went requests the pleasure of your company at a mass ball to celebrate the grand opening of the Overlook Hotel. The dinner will be served at 8 p.m., unmasking and dancing at midnight. August 29th, 1945. RSVP. Unmask! Unmask! <laughs> Unmask! <laughs> Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Walls, and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, production of SyncBook Radio, and distributed by thesyncbook.com. It's Monday night, January 2nd, and this is the winter installment of the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club. This one launches us onto a shining new year indeed. And as always, I'm joined by visual artist and book club regular Dennis Cook. And as Sync would have it, I think we chose the exact right book for the moment. The Shining is a horror novel by American author Stephen King, published in 1977. It is King's third published novel and his first hardback bestseller. The success of the book firmly established King as a preeminent author in the horror genre. The setting and characters are influenced by King's personal experiences, including both his visit to the Stanley Hotel in 1974 and his recovery from alcoholism. The novel was followed by a sequel, Dr. Sleep, published in 2013. The Shining centers on the life of Jack Torrance, an aspiring writer and recovering alcoholic who accepts a position as an off-season caretaker of the historic Overlook Hotel in the Colorado Rockies. His family accompanies him on the job, including his young son, Danny Torrance, who possesses The Shining, an array of psychic abilities that allows Danny to see the hotel's horrific past. Soon after a winter storm leaves them snowbound, the supernatural forces inhabiting the hotel influence Jack's sanity, leaving his wife and son in incredible danger. The novel was adapted into a 1980 feature film of the same name, directed by Stanley Kubrick and co-written by Diane Johnson. Although King himself remains disappointed with the adaptation, having criticized its handling of the book's themes and of Wendy's character, it is regarded as one of the greatest horror films ever made. The television miniseries later premiered in 1997, with the making closely monitored by King to ensure that it followed the novel's narrative. King wrote the series himself and was reportedly unable to criticize the Kubrick version due to his contract. Happy New Year's, Dennis. Unmask, how are you? <laughs> hey, Happy New Year's. I'm good. Yeah. What, what is this unmasking? What, what well, is... okay. First of all, you, you read my mind as a place of starting point because uh, Stuart Ullman says that Vanderbilt's, Astor's, Rockefeller's, DuPont's, as well as three presidents, including Wilson, Harding, and Roosevelt, all stayed in the, in the Overlook. And then when Jack is later in the basement seeing going through the scrapbook, you mentioned uh, Daryl F. Zanuck, which was, you know, he couldn't help but like reading the background of everybody that's mentioned just as a fun sort of sync thing. Um, so he was Daryl Zanuck was a Danny Zanuck, I think, was what he went by was a studio head, a producer, and a director. You know, you know, it's funny in that list. Uh, Rothschilds is not mentioned, but he he did he um, produced a film called House of Rothschilds, as well as a film called called Stanley and Livingstone in 1937. So it's just weird. And as far as your question is, 
what is a being unmasked. I think it's just the my my saying would I guess I would say that the layers of thi- of you know echoes of entities or whatever you want to call it that sort of psychically li- live through all of us, but also cohabitate in a place like a hotel and prey on us, but not. This is the unmasking is that is the layers behind just the mask that we all wear or don't wear. So, well, that's that's how King starts his book with this this epigram from Poe. It's Mm -hmm. the Red Death held sway. And so it's kind of building to this this unmasking at the the party. Um, Everyone has a relationship to The Shining what is yours? I mean, so like historically, had you read this book before? No, I had not. And you had made a comment in an email that you were, you, you, there was layers of interpretation that you never picked up when you read earlier. I think I, when I, so my history with the shining is, is a little, well, I, I didn't like horror films in high school so much. So I had an awareness of The Shining as a thing, and I definitely saw moments from The Shining. But I don't know that I ever like internalized it as something that was important to me until much later on. And then I think it was in 2009, that winter, I really got into The Shining. But I, I started with the book before I, I watched the film again. And so at that point in time, I really read it as the, the the parts that resonated more with me was the idea of Jack as the caretaker and that is his role. And so he's, he's, he wants to do, he's torn in this, this, between this position of trying to execute the will of the Overlook hotel, but then also trying to be a good father. Yeah. But that didn't resonate so much this time with me. Mm. I mean, so I guess I was feeling more of the supernatural elements this time. Oh, okay. Okay. I gotcha. And so I think when I read it the first time, I really thought of it in terms of like a literary convention that he was, you know, the, the, the horrific or the, the ghostly elements were not as, you know, as important. That was just one way of explaining why he was behaving so badly but now this time it it seemed like like in a typical ghost story i thought all right there's ghosts you know there's ghosts it's time to get the hell out (laughs) (laughs) yeah 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 it seemed like it went on and on like they're in the hotel and it's like no you know it's like they wake up the next day and it's like well maybe that really didn't happen well you know the things that i noticed that I I would have never noticed if I had read er, younger was the strong sort of sexual overtones or subtext that sometimes isn't even that hidden. I mean, uh, you know, he's talking about vicious little prick or little shit or um, what's the I'm I'm blanking on the biggest one. Oh, well, Danny yelling, Dick, please come like for like three pages, you know, but, but and then there's also so much I did I never would have picked up a lot of these sort of East Coast connections. I mean, King himself being from Maine, uh, Stovington Prep, where Jack Torrance taught, being a Vermont or New Hampshire, it's kind of it could be I think it's Vermont, but I mean 
And then that has a really big overlay with Infinite Jest, David Foster Wallace's book, because Enfield Tennis Academy is in Massachusetts. So there's another East Coast that a lot of the uh, content of that book is about alcoholism or AA or drug um, uh, stuff. So that really relates to where King is speaking from, given where he was at at this point. So um, and then, oh, oh, one that I noticed was... um, like the idea that um, Jack Torrance it has a um, homosexual or um, like this is a big part of Stanley Kubrick's film. It, but like wh- I noticed that when uh, Al Shockley, who is the part owner of the Overlook, but also was a sort of drinking buddy with uh, Jack Torrance when he was, uh, you know, a hotshot writer at Stovington Prep, and uh, they they were just drunks all the time, Dr- and they run over a bicycle. But and and it's and it's said that it's queer providence that the two of them. Uh, now I think he's actually making a double joke. Now I mean, there's m- many layers to that, but Provincetown, Massachusetts, is like a artist community that has long since been a place where um, like gay and lesbian people live on the tip of Cape Cod. So like all of this East Coast, or even wasps, like wasps as imagery, um, it plays a role. Danny gets stung by wasps. Um, now that also could be taken as white Anglo-Saxon Protestant stuff. So maybe that's really obvious, but. Um, I would never have gotten that when I was younger. Um, so that would be worth pointing out to listeners that if you were to watch Room Two Three Seven and they they bring these different points up in the movie, if if you read the book, some of those points, you know, so like um, like Grady's split head. It's like why why does Grady have this split head? Well, that's in the book. Or this dog, like the dog in the room. This is so bizarre. Why is you know? It's like there's no context for the dog in, in in Kubrick's film, but the the uh, Derwent's party. So all these different events are all happening simultaneously at the Overlook. It's like the place where that there's no time. Everything is happening now. Yeah. And and so it seemed like that's part of the reason why Kubrick's film was so creepy is that there was this fully realized world that he tapped into. But he didn't explain. So like you were talking about Stovington Prep, you know, there's all this whole background, especially with both their parents. Like we get the whole psychological breakdown of why yeah. Wendy is Wendy and then why Jack is Jack. And then I you know, I watched the film again before talking to you and uh, there's not much to the Wendy character in the film at all. That movie really is about Jack and madness. Yeah. Well, and I, I understand where King is speaking from in terms of his critique of The Shining, as it as it as it ignores his sort of writing that his writing is not really acknowledged within the movie, other than the repetitive line. But I, I mean, wouldn't doesn't King have any idea that that, that there's possibly a whole another layer of interpretation as it relates to King uh, Kubrick's because the A one one. I mean, this is all in Room 237 or in Jay Widener's Kubrick Odyssey movies, but the A11 as an allusion to Apollo 11 and many of the other uh, moon-oriented uh, room, uh, the, the moon being 2,300 uh, or 2,300 or 2,300, you know what I'm... Yeah, 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 the distance from number, the moon to the earth. <laughs> a number from the earth. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, it's interesting because the 
fun thing for me was to realize that some of the most enigmatic lines like that Jack spoke were straight out of the book, like the the whole Lloyd conversation. Yeah. You know, white man's yeah. burden, Lloyd. You're you are you you are the best from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Portland, Oregon, for that matter. You know, all those were... Straight out of the book, yeah. Straight out of the book. And I, I found there would be a lot more similarities than I was led to believe, like, because it, it's always that there's such a difference, but, you know, I don't know. Well, so, like, the Kubrick definitely added, like, the maze element, and that was, you know, so this idea of Jack as this kind of minotaur devil figure at the center of the maze, mm-hmm. or the mind yeah. as a maze. But uh, King played with the... The wasp nest a little bit like as the like that kind of hive the the yeah. repository of un unfeeling insect. Well, and also King focuses on the hedge animals as a which I I don't think would ever play well as a movie. Uh, I don't know if the miniseries included the hedge animals, but I could see why. Uh, if I was Kubrick, I would never want that to be a part of the movie, just because I don't think it would play really well. From a from a special effects standpoint, too, it's probably why Kubrick didn't blow up the Overlook at the end. Like he, the yeah. whole the whole idea of the boiler was like yeah. it was like a lot of that stuff. So the scrapbook is there on Jack's on Jack's desk in the film. Like the scrapbook is in the movie, but it's just not. So like it, it's oh, it's nice. influencing his actions. Like it, so, you know, we understand why Jack's behaving the way he is, even though we're we don't have his mental landscape that King gives us in the book. Yeah, and that's that's interesting that it's on the that it's on the table. I didn't know that. And well, which makes sense. I mean, Ullman self-identifies as part of the hotel. Basically, I mean, so, yeah, so those, I mean, the entities basically live through him because he's, you know, believe, he believe, yeah, well, anyways, yeah, and, and Grady, Grady, or Watson calls Grady a bad actor at one point in the book, uh, which I thought was interesting, and I don't know, there's, yeah, I could see where, yeah, yeah. okay, so then, uh, I, I know that, like, from a, from an illusion standpoint. So like in terms of thinking like in, you know, like the, the place is the person kind of thing. Yeah. So the boiler is like Jack's temper and he has to constantly (laughs) keep it in check because if he loses control, like that's what happened. Why he broke Danny's arm initially. Like he lost his cool, the pressure thing is, I, I I get that. I also Watson called it just the press at one point in the in the beginning, which I thought was interesting. If you consider like this, the press possibly exposing the underbelly of what has been the epicenter of the oh, opera yeah, look. Yeah, you know, it's like there's this whole organized crime backs, uh, it, Hollywood organized crime intersection point, which you know is also whitewashed as as a reality um within you know u.s history so um yeah but what's really fascinating to me this time was so so jack he's an alcoholic and he goes up there and it's it's a dry building but so he still has addictive tendencies and it's the scrapbook that really brings it out like this is so like at that point all his his little tells addiction tells he starts wiping his lips and he's chewing aspirin and he's behaving like 
you know, he's on the sauce again. But what it is is he's getting a he's getting this kind of it's that conspiracy juice that a lot of people can absolutely get. yeah yeah well yeah he's getting hot I mean he's getting hot he's consuming it he's he's uh yeah he's he's um and like the the chewing excedrin things probably might be a I don't I always I was thinking that was some sort of allusion to you know King's experience with cocaine or um you know I don't know speed in general like I mean the 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 thought level of speed which can be gotten to in a lot of ways um which is different than alcoholism if you ask me but um yeah but i yeah i, I reading i reading some of what king had said about where he was at that his point in his life and like you know the idea of hating your kids like um or that i mean and that has a degree of timeliness if you consider the the pedophilia talk so um and there is pedophilia illusions within the book i would say i mean um not maybe not maybe not in a huge part of the book um maybe more so in in the movie i don't know i'm it's sort of there the the idea that he was reading the playgirl yeah yeah right before you know, so that so he he goes through the interview, he gets hired, and then on the last day he comes up with his family, and they're kind of giving him a quick walkthrough tour. Uh, Watson, Ullman, and Halloran in the kitchen. But he's definitely in the movie. He's reading a Playgirl, and I just don't know what to make of that because, like you're saying, there were some homosexual elements that you picked up on. I didn't pick up on those. Well, I was saying. Okay, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's because I, my head was more kind of thinking in terms of, uh, on some strange level, this big haunted house is kind of like, it, you know, I, um, it's like in The Godfather where they want to be legitimate, but then you realize it doesn't matter because at, at some level, they're all gangsters. It doesn't matter how, you know, how... Uh, society's views you our history is dirty you know all the stuff from 237 it rings true like the holocaust and the genocide of the indians and and it's all there in the book i really feel like so even though it feels like if you're just watching the film like oh you know these guys are grasping at straws that's that's (laughs) silly but it's in the book you know the source it's there i mean horace derwent the owner of the overlook who okay so I don't know if there was a ton of of allusions to uh, the homosexuality of of Jack Torrance as it relates to some of the speculation about the movie. But Horace Derwent, one of the there's a lady that Jack is dancing with and the lady says that uh, I don't remember the specific wording, but she says that Roger, the guy in the dog uh, uh, costume, is Horace Derwent's gay lover. But he but Horace Derwent d- never sleeps with the same person twice or something. And so Roger is driving himself crazy because he wants to be with uh, Horace Derwent. But he the, the way she says it is much she it's more illusionary, but or more or not as literal. Um, I wish I had that in front of me because it was a nice passage. But um, anyways, they're there. Tendrils are there, though I think they're teased out in different ways in the film rather than in the in the book. But um. 
So if if we think about like the Overlook is this political structure that like Wendy and Danny are trapped in because like that's the feeling yeah. that, that they're trapped in the structure and and Jack is trapped too but he's definitely under its sway and so towards the end like in a ghost story uh, you know Danny says it's not really my dad he's been taken over by this this monster thing but the yeah, you're not my dad yeah the interesting thing to me is if you think of it in terms of like the overlook as like the patriarchy like the 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 governing principle you know it's being undermined by a woman and a, and a black man oh yeah. and i i don't <laughs> know if he did that on purpose or not that's i you know as far as i don't think like part of the the part of the magic of king is that he writes kind of in the in the pop consciousness vernacular of, yeah. the, of the time and so it's 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 like i don't think he could get away with that there's like a level of racism in the book <laughs> yeah 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 no that's a good point I, I it made me think of what david played has said before in terms of this is the house uh that we've built and then and we live in this house and it's falling apart and uh um yeah the the overlook is a microcosm of the the larger house that 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 we inhabit for better or for worse um yeah and if you want to see all these things it's there and there's and the, the the structure of the attic and basement is really great because um and they're talking Ullman's talking about rat traps in the the attic and basement and Jack needs to, and Jack ends up spending all of his time in the basement. He's the rat. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 But it's like different levels of, of, of different stratas of, of reality of our reality. Um, so. Yeah. But then the overlook is high, high in the mountains. It's so like, it's the, uh, like Olympus. It's the, you know, untouchable godlike, um, like Zeus kind of thing. You know, right. I mean, the owner's name is Horus, and it says everything he touches turns to gold. <laughs> so I mean, that's like, uh, I mean, I I know Alex Fulton has been on this like uh, gold theme as it relates to whoever is standing in charge. So yeah. Well, that's I mean, fascinating because of. Um, so I don't know if it's in the movie, the bar is called the Gold Room. I don't. Yeah. Remember, I don't remember if that's the way it is in the book or not. Oh, it's, I think it's just the Colorado Lounge, right? Yeah. I mean, well, in the in yeah. the movie, it's kind of like the workspace where he's at is the the Colorado Lounge, and then there's also the uh, the Gold Room. Yeah, I don't remember if they use that term or not. Yeah. But interesting, the Gold Room. From, <laughs> well, the reason why that kind of resonated with me was because when i started seeing trump at his official like meetings with uh, heads of state his actual you know his decor yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it looks like dynasty is the gold room it's like that alex <laughs> told me that too yeah yeah it's interesting and so like i guess that was the the thing that was resonating this time for me. It's like, so the idea of being trapped in a haunted house with like a scary monster, you know, running around, I could see how, you know, this is the reality that a lot of people are feeling right now. 
that they're not certain if they're trapped in a structure that is like dangerous to them. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I don't know. I, I'm not really, I've been, I'm, I have been just sort of an outside observer. I haven't, (laughs) I, but I know you're, you're right. Most people are, that's probably a very apt description of most people's states. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the so that which goes maybe perhaps intersects with the other quote at the beginning, the Goya quote, where the sleep of reason produces monsters, which there's a lot of sleep conversation in both the book and the movie as it um, who's getting enough or or is Danny sleeping? Well, Danny doesn't sleep well at night um, in the book, whereas Jack is never sleeping in the movie. Um, and then this whole like boy, father, wife thing like all the like various dynamics of um that is playing out i mean this sort of uh psychological landscape of the family um yeah yeah and in the movie some of those visuals are like you can sense like danny and jack are almost the same thing yeah yeah like I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but there's there's this weird mirroring going on where Jack and Danny are the same. For sure, yeah. I mean, I think the book gets at that too, even though, um, yeah. It, at times, it's hard to remember what 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 you're experiencing, for, what you're remembering as the book or the movie. I mean, they're intertwined. Like I was thinking about that the other day as it relates. And oh, I should say. Look, I I wanted to say this. Like, there is so much of Eyes Wide Shut in this movie because the doc. I mean, Danny sees a doctor named Doctor Bill. Um, there is like, I mean, basically the unmasking party has a lot of overlays with Eyes Wide Shut. Like, really, I mean, sort of obvious ones. And um, yeah. Now, when you were reading it, did you see, you know, Danny Lloyd and Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall? as kind of the characters or did you yeah i mean it's hard to not jack uh nicholson is so uh you know it's hard to not see that yeah yeah Stuart Ullman. yeah well now he's a much different character as described by king though yeah he's much yeah less of a less of a uh a vicious because, prick, a vicious yeah. prick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, like to- a lot of dick talk, a lot of dick <laughs> talk all the time in this story- book. But yeah, which, you know, again, might it might correlate to this patriarch model um, uh, for sure. Um, huh. Yeah, but it was interesting because later on when, when J- Jack is talking to Grady, you know, and Grady's like, you know, you know, talking about the manager, the manager really likes you, you know, maybe, maybe you have what it takes to be the manager, you know? So, Oh yeah. Well, it's the, look, the, how the entities are the house always want to build the managerial class because those are the people keeping their structure in place for them. So this house is this place that is a sort of feeding grounds for the next level up is all about em, emboldening or empowering the management class, I would say. And um, yeah, everybody wants the dream of Jack. Jack thinks that he can go and study uh, and learn all the things that, you know, that his big redemption can be learning 
from the same way that Grady learned um, and become a, a, you know, a very studious person uh, or like a, like a, I don't remember how they frame it, but like a man of stature. Um. But there's that. So that's interesting too, because of, so Jack is not of that class, even though he, at Stovington prep, he was, he was almost there. He would never be there, but you know, so his buddies, Al Shockley, but they're not the same at all. No. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And, and so he... this is like, this is Jack's last, absolute last chance because like in the book and the movie when Wendy's like we need to get Danny out of here he's like thinking about you know his next job would be you know shoveling driveways or pushing a broom in a high school or something totally and you know as it as like as someone who's exists in this artist class that's dependent on like that's you always like that's always in the I bet that's in the back of more than just artist or writer people's mind that you're two steps away from no job at all or no or no credentials within the recognized structure of society which you know whatever i think people i mean i'm look <laughs> i work on a farm all the, a lot of the time so but i mean i i could identify with where he's speaking there because like uh yeah i mean yeah this jack's last shot yeah well, and it's interesting. So he was right. He was up for tenure. He was about to lock into, you know, a life of stability. And so uh, he had sold the story to Esquire. You know, it seemed like their life was mostly pretty good. He, but there was the moment with um, the, the he was the debate coach. Yeah, George Hatfield. Right, and he and he really did set the timer ahead, is what I got. Yeah, yeah, he absolutely did. He he was in the state of denial about it for a while, but he eventually says he at least he did it at least a minute. He said, but um, yeah, maybe more. Right, and so Jack has got it's in him these destructive tendencies or explosive. It's the violence. But uh, yeah, but you nailed it too. Also, self-destruction, which is you know, uh, you know, a byproduct of his addiction. Um, yeah. Right. So even though he's like, that's the trick. Even though, so he was, he was an alcoholic, but he wasn't drinking. But as far as like his addictive personality, like there's a part of him that is still just teetering on going out of control. Like there was the moment when when he was about. You know, it's like, oh, here's I found everything. We can get Danny out on the snowmobile, and Stephen King's playing with this idea of bees and wasps or what? You know, because <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King's equating the snowmobile, which is an interesting digression in the sense that Stanley Kubrick, I don't know the thing that he calls a snowcat and what we think of as snowcats in the West are mm-hmm. not the same thing. <laughs> Well, hey, oh, and you, you reminded me as you were speaking there that uh, Jack, when he was really drunk at, or hung over uh, at his Stovington Prep School, he was described as the uh, red-eyed monster. Um, and then also earlier, Jack sees a blinking red eye, which both sort of have that, um, you know, Hal 2001 uh, connection. Um, yeah, 
and then Hal being a character in Infinite Jest. I mean, this is these things loop back on each other. But yeah, so I didn't notice. I didn't make. I didn't think about that. Uh, the snowcat uh, thing that you're pointing out. That's interesting. Well, yeah. So he found he found the spark plugs. He put them in, yeah. and then at the very last second, he found the battery. Um, but then in, in the end, I think it was a magneto or something. He chucked it. Chucked it out outside the shed. Yeah. Now, as far as points of un- unbelievability, I, I can believe that the Overlook would have electricity. Like, okay, that's plausible to me. But the idea, it, it seemed like it was natural gas that was running the boiler. <laughs> and I don't know if that's possible up there or not. Or even yeah. even water. Like I was thinking, so how where are they getting their water from? I, I I for whatever reason I was starting to like try and scrutinize some of the. But I guess I've never been to the Stanley. Have you ever been there? I have not. I mean, I've looked at plenty of pictures in the last couple of weeks, but uh, no. But and then uh, uh, I mentioned it earlier, but both Alex Fulton has recently stayed there, and then Talitha used to live in Colorado, Talitha Wall, and she's stayed there before. And she claim, and both Alex and Talitha say that it is very haunted. Like, or, I mean, it's notably haunted. Like, I mean, and, yeah. I read a report that Jim Carrey checked into room two seventeen, and then like two hours later checked out and didn't say anything to anyone it's funny you know jim carrey he was not he uh, checked into the uh, there's a famous story of jim carrey here in iowa uh going to the meditation center in fairfield iowa which is pretty famous and uh staying for like a day and then being photographed with a bunch of kids on a bus in a in a burger king um uh parking lot so that's the, not the most surprising thing that he checked out of 217. Okay, so now the the real question that we have to get to is is this is this art? Is this literature? Man, I would say I really I, I I had a much greater appreciation for Stephen King after reading this. I didn't I didn't um yeah. Are you talking about King or are you Yeah, <laughs> I am. I am. Yeah. I'm 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 I have a problem with King. I he is okay. so good at what he does, but I wonder I wonder about his, just his voice and if that is part of why it was that pop consciousness, his ability to he, you know it's like Spielberg where he just inserts coke and skittles and everything like all the ephemera of our lives are in there and it just feels so familiar like it's a space I just don't know if it's beautiful at the same time, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I've like read so little of, of him, uh, but you know, uh, I think you, I found myself taking the side of Stanley Kubrick in the past as it relates to like, which is art here. And I, and I just, I, I felt like several Kubrick films came, came out of this story. So um, it gave me a greater appreciation from him. Maybe, maybe they both are looking at the same layers that substrata layers that lay behind uh, consensus reality. So there you go. But I don't know, but was there anything that we missed? Oh crap. Um, Oh, 
I mean, so um, the thing about a film and a book is they're so different. A, a movie has just such a focused intent, and a book really can, you know, like in the introduction, it can go a lot of different directions and touch a lot of different themes. Mm. Yeah. <sighs> Crap, I don't know, Doug. I, I remember um, – I remember – I mean, obviously there's like – I don't, maybe in the book you would like have more uh, of like ambiguity about red rum and uh, like maybe you wouldn't immediately notice the mirroring of the word there. But then because you've seen the movie, it's like that whole plot point is just not that distressing at all because you know where that's going. And then I was thinking here, the um, <laughs> I when he's describing the rope court and then and then the shed where the 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 um roke the, right that is something yeah. that we didn't mention roke, yeah roke instead of i don't yeah. even know if that's real or if stephen king made up roke for the shining <laughs> i yes i don't either to, to be honest but i somehow could yeah it's, it's like a better version of croquet okay sure but um they he there's a line there where he says he says something about a life-sized uncle wiggly game behind the equipment shed which was seemed really, uh, <laughs> that seemed very molesty, very, very pedophilic. Um, there was the monster in the glass, the cement ring too, and the you know the where Jack, um, the miniature Overlook Hotel. Hmm. I'm going to eat you all up. Or he said he does something fairly ominous. Oh yeah, and then oh okay yeah that that whole the whole cement tube thing was like hard to envision at times. I don't I don't really I didn't really know what the heck was going on at that part. But um, and then well oh and then in terms of the Native American line that is talked about in Room Two Three Seven and and is present in the movie. I mean I think like that Danny lives on Arapahoe Street at one point in the book. So I mean perhaps that's king alluding to that specifically um it seemed like kubrick inserted some of that the buried on an indian graveyard was kubrick i don't think that was in the book but that is a a, when did stephen king write that in um in uh the one about the cat what the heck is that one called uh do you know what i'm talking about is it cats no the one that became a movie with drew barrymore I don't know, but isn't something the cat is buried in an Indian burial ground? Oh, is it the pet cemetery? Pet cemetery, duh, God. I don't, yeah, I think. I mean, I don't know what year did that come out because maybe. I see. Maybe King is really pissed off at Stanley Kubrick because he feels that he's stealing parts of his uh, books, and and like I don't know. It's funny. The movie it feels like it's like. He interviews, they go up there, and they're there for, you know, like a week, and then the biggest storm in the world hits, and then yeah. he kills everyone. And so it's like, ah, uh, maybe, you know, week and a half, two weeks tops. <laughs> but the book definitely goes over a, a much longer period of time, is how it feels. I don't quite remember where... Did they make it to Christmas? Oh, well, they, they're buying Christmas presents oh, in, in Sidewinder Sidewinder at one point. I know that. Um, but I don't remember a big Christmassy thing. Well, so anyway, this Christmas, my mother-in-law came to town 
and no one was willing to host Christmas, so she just rented a suite at, at a hotel for us to, so all the families, my wife's and her sisters could come and have, you know, Christmas together. But we're in a hotel, which was yeah. off. But what was interesting was uh, she rented the Eastwood suite, and it was called that because that's where Clint Eastwood stayed for the six weeks that he was in Boise filming Bronco Billy. And so there, <laughs> <laughs> there's all these Clint Eastwood posters in the suite that we're having Christmas in, but Scatman Crothers was in Bronco Billy, and so there's there's these posters of Clint Eastwood with with you know Dick Halloran from the movie, and then this is the Christmas that all, all the kids got. They're calling them hoverboards. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I don't know why they call them hoverboards. They're just like these. I don't know what the heck you call them, right? They're motorized scooters with two wheels that you stand erect on. But of course, if you're on a hotel and you get one of these things, it was brilliant. And of course, you're going to ride it up and down the halls, just like Danny <laughs> Torrance. <laughs> so we're, we're at Christmas and we're riding these steady cams basically up and down the halls in a hotel. That's funny. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. You reminded me that I stayed in the Peckinpah suite in the Murray Hotel in Bozeman, in Bozeman, Montana, once, which was where Sam Peckinpah lived. And, and there's a gun, there's a bullet hole in the ceiling from where he was drunkenly shot in the ceiling one time. But yeah, but yeah, no, you know, hey man, look, we we didn't go to our families for Christmas this year, so I know how it goes. Like, and sometimes like a neutral site is uh, understandable, but that's maybe outside of the purview of our conversation. I, I get it. <laughs> well, that was forty two minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. My pleasure. Thanks, Doug. You bet. So, the next book is going to be a doozy. <laughs> We're- and we can't get any of these club members to participate. I don't know, you know, I understand. You know, it's a, it's a big commitment. But, dudes, this was a softball. This was the shining. I know. I Look, I've already, I've already softly whined to Talitha because this is her life that, that correlates with this book. But, yeah, I know. <laughs> and it's funny because there's a part of me that – you know the last one was really painful on some level even though it was a really good book yeah there's a part of me that thinks we're gonna have to do that one again man i've really got i got a lot out of that book i really appreciated that as an experience but um but it was a beast it really was but i really think this next one we're gonna do james joyce's ulysses is going to (laughs) (laughs) we'll talk about this maybe an even bigger beast Okay, all right. You want to go bigger beast? Okay, all right. I was gonna, I was gonna like softly campaign for maybe something in between that that allows something that's like ten pages long. That, <laughs> <laughs> that, that really we could, really we could just say, hey, it's only ten pages long. Like, what possibly could you read your excuse for not reading these ten pages? Like, I, you know, but I, again, I. I the I reason now I sound bitchy for. for... <laughs> we have to. The reason why, I think. I mean, so like I, we chose The Shining on purpose for winter because it felt right. Yeah. But then right. we're doing it early. It feels like we just did the fall book club also on purpose because 
the idea is that we're going to do the show on Bloomsday. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Because the book is about Harold Bloom. Oh. And I don't know when Bloomsday is, but I think it's like June 14th. So there's lots of time. I'm sorry. Educate me here. What book is that that you're talking about? James Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, duh. Okay. I thought, what is it? Okay. All right. I'm just, I'm an idiot. I didn't know. I lost it. I lost, I lost the context for a moment. I tried to read this book in my early, early 20s, and I could not do it. I've tried reading Finnegan's Wake before. And never well, did. I think we have to do this one before we can do it. Like, that's my thought. Oh, we've got to work up. You know, you climb the littler mountain, and then yeah. you climb the big mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, hey, I'm going to, I will, I will try to do it because I've always wanted to tackle these things, and I will, I will, I will try. All right, so with that in mind, you've been listening to the 42 Minutes Winter Book Club, a production of SickBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Be sure and check out Dennis's work at his website, to which I'll link for more information about the SyncBook, our guests to check out past shows, or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast and would like more, consider becoming a SyncBook Plus member. Some of the membership benefits include full access to the complete audio archive, discounts on books, behind-the-scenes scripts, bonus audio and video, as well as monthly online hangouts with the hosts. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com slash membership. Thanks so much, and I guess you'll take your medicine now. Take it like a man. Every drop. Every drop. Puppy. <laughs> well...
recorded that.